Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. This morning, we're continuing our sermon series that we're calling Winning, Seven Messages on Overcoming, and it's a walk through what is known as the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. It's, chaptered, it's captured in chapters two and chapter three of that book, and we're calling it Winning because in each letter, Jesus emphasizes overcoming the very real challenges facing the people of God in that day. And as we walk through this series, I'm hopeful and believe that we will continue to find that the challenges facing God's people in that day were not so unlike the challenges that we face in our day. And Jesus speaks words of affirmation and comfort, words of rebuke and challenge, words that also ultimately are a calling to overcome. And to those who overcome, Jesus makes promises throughout these messages, promises to all of us of what God will give us in the end as we overcome through Jesus Christ. So we're in our third message in this series, and as we move into this, I want to tell you about the fall of my sophomore year of college when finals time rolled around. I was down to my last final. It was physics three, and there were a lot of concepts that I still did not know from that semester, and so I was just grinding and studying. I, I mean, I was late into the night, the night before, and got up the next day after kind of sleeping in a little bit because the final wasn't until four o'clock in the afternoon. And so I got up though and kept on studying. I decided to go over to the physics building, you know, a few hours early so that I could just kind of cram in that last minute, which cramming worked for me. And so I was starting to feel pretty good. And so just before four o'clock, I went downstairs and went into the room where the final was being taken. And there were some people already seated and there were some people walking out. And I went and found, it, and I found a seat and sat down and started looking around. And as I was looking around, I realized that the people sitting there seemed to be working on something. And I was confused. And so I walked up to the teaching assistant at the front of the room and I said, hey, is this the physics three final? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. It's almost over. What? Yeah, yeah, it, it started at one. It'll be over in just a few minutes. And you can imagine my stomach just dropped and I just wanted to throw up and I had to eventually, I had to go to the professor, sit outside his office until he showed up again and plead for mercy. He let me take it a little later with a penalty and I was able to, to pass the, the class. But I tell you this story because what we believe matters. I believed that test started at four and it started at one. What we believe matters it deeply affects everything about our lives, what we think, what we do, and ultimately how we live. And this is at the heart of what Jesus gets at in this next message to the church in Pergamum. And so if you'd like, you can follow along as we read from Revelation chapter 2. Hear these words from Jesus to us this morning. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. 
You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray as we move into this word together. Heavenly Father, send your spirit among us that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit says to the churches. That whatever we take in and internalize would only be your words so that we can respond to what you're doing and we can become more and more the people of hope in this dark world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Pergamum was apparently a jewel of a city, the most glorious in Asia. It was built on this huge hilltop that actually, if you went all the way up to the top of the hill outside of the city, apparently you could see for 15 miles down to where the Mediterranean Sea was. It had been a capital city for probably 400 years or so by the time John is writing, and there was a church in Pergamum, and Jesus has a message for the church. He says, I know where you live. Now, we could hear that as a threat. I know where you live. I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. Because he responds, he follows up on it. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, to understand maybe what Jesus is getting at, we need to understand that Pergamum was a major religious center. Certainly, it was a center of emperor worship and and similar to what we talked about last week. But Smyrna, as we talked about last week, was kind of the first city to embrace emperor worship and have a temple. Pergamum was a capital of this province for and the seat of the Roman government, so they were absolutely all in on emperor worship, and they had a temple there to the the Caesar Augustus. But in addition to emperor worship, there was a whole lot of other options in Pergamum. It was an incredibly pluralistic city. There was a a temple to a god known as Asclepius, god known for healing. And so people would come from all over the world with their ailments and their infirmities, and they would seek healing. And one commentator said it was really kind of like part temple, part hospital. Also in the city, there was a temple to Athena. Actually, it was up on the hillside outside the city, and outside of that temple, there was this huge altar-like statue to Zeus. It was a 40-foot-high statue out on this ledge, this outcropping, kind of looming ominously over the city, right? And in addition to these gods, there was many other gods from the whole pantheon that could have been worshipped in that city. And furthermore, both Asclepius and Zeus were known by the title Savior. And so we could imagine that either one of those might be the one that Jesus is identifying as Satan since they were taking on the title that belonged to Jesus. Furthermore, they both actually were associated with serpents, which if you recall back to the the stories in the early Genesis in the Garden of Eden, Satan is presented as the serpent. 
And so there we have this identification. The chief symbol of Asclepius is the serpent because legend said that it was a serpent that whispered in Asclepius's ear and taught him the healing arts. For, for Zeus, uh, among that altar, that huge statue, there were other sculptures and many of them integrating serpents. And so we don't exactly know which of these gods or if it was really this whole you know, conglomeration of gods in the city of Pergamum that caused Jesus to acknowledge it as the, 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 where Satan actually lived and has his throne. Because really, if we think about it, Satan doesn't actually care who our loyalty, who our worship goes to, as long as it doesn't go to God, right? That's his whole plan and purpose is to divide us, separate us from God and God's purposes for our lives, And so with all of this religious activity and fervor, there was an incredible amount of pressure on the church in Pergamum to participate in these various forms of worship, to proclaim Caesar as Lord, to proclaim Asclepius or Zeus as Savior, which last week when we were looking at the church in Smyrna, that, that question was really looming in the air. Jesus was charging them, hey, overcome the temptation to proclaim Caesar as Lord. Hold on to Jesus as Lord. Well, this week as we look at, at Pergamum, it seems like that particular issue is kind of settled, right? Jesus actually affirms them in that regard. He says, yet you remain true to my name. In other words, you didn't renounce me even though there was persecution calling you to renounce Jesus, to proclaim Caesar, you've held true, you've held fast, even in the face of persecution, way to go. Even though the persecution had gotten bad enough that Antipas was one of the martyrs, one of those folks who were killed because they refused to give in and they held on to the faith. And so he's affirming this church and, and there was more. And he says, nevertheless, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. In other words, Jesus is making it pretty clear that good behavior in one area of life does not justify bad behavior in another. We know that, right? Just because you ate your vegetables does not mean it was okay to throw those rocks through the window, hypothetically speaking, right? And Jesus is saying the same thing. You've held fast to the faith. You're doing it. You're holding true to my name, and yet there's some problems, and they still need to be addressed, There's some people among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. This is imagery that that draws from the book of Numbers way back in the Old Testament, and you can read the full story of Balak and Balaam, but Balak was the king of Moab, and he really was trying to conquer God's people, the Israelites. And so he asked Balaam to come and curse them, but multiple times he instead blessed them because that's what God made him do. But in the end, seeking to get paid by the king of Moab, Balaam had a little workaround. And he taught them how they could infiltrate the Israelite people and have God's blessing removed from them so that ultimately Moab could overcome. So what was the strategy? They ended up intermarrying Moabite women among the Israelite men. And now, Some of those men, likely from Israel, were already married, and so were taking on Moabite women. And so in doing so, from the very first step, they were violating God's plan and his purpose for their life, for their marriage, for sexuality. Along with these, these women that came from Moabite background brought with them their Moabite gods and their practices of worship that went along with it. And so over time, to, you know, happy wife, happy life, the men decided to go along with the women. 
And they took on worshiping these Moabite gods, and they took on these practices of the Moabites, would have been, which were in direct violation of God's way. But the way they did it was kind of like, yeah, God's way, God's command, sure, yeah, absolutely, we're going to continue doing those, but we're also going to do some of these things over here. We're, we're going to take on some, some of the Moabite way of living in addition to the way that God intends for us. And, and God has to discipline his people over and over again and rebukes them, calling back to single faithfulness to God's way. And Jesus is saying the same thing is happening in Pergamum. He's saying, you're so faithful, you're true to my name, and yet there's some among you who are saying, hey, yeah, that whole Zeus thing, yeah, let's do some of that. Asclepius, sure, we could worship Asclepius some here and there. Emperor, no problem. Hey, let's enjoy some of the food in those pagan feasts and give thanks to the gods for this abundant provision in our lives. Right, they're saying, this whole Jesus thing, sure, absolutely, and we're gonna do some of these things as well. And Jesus is saying, it's not compatible. It, this, it doesn't work like that. And he calls them to repentance, to turn back from this way of being that's not working, which is what repentance means. Turn away from this way of living, what you're doing, and turn back fully to God, fully living in alignment with his design, the way he's made you, the way he's made you to live. But one of the striking things, if we step back from this for a moment, is to think about who is Jesus actually talking to in this message? Like frequently when we see words of rebuke, correction, we're tempted to think, oh, well, he's talking to the ones who are doing it wrong, right? He must be talking to those who are holding to these false teachings. But see, Jesus doesn't single them out. As a matter of fact, he's more addressing the faithful than the unfaithful. He's saying, there are some among you that are holding to these teachings. And so he's really saying to the whole church, to everybody, y'all better repent, Turn back from what? Because there's two parts here. Turn back from the false teaching and the false living that comes from it, and turn back from tolerating and allowing the false teaching to be perpetuated in the church. Because these two parts work together. Because there were some that saying, yeah, it's cool, we're going to do a little of both. And the rest of the church was saying, yeah, okay, it's fine, you do you as long as it doesn't affect me. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's not how that works. That it all affects all of us. And they're not compatible ways of living. And why is Jesus so concerned about false teaching? Why does it matter so much? Because I think if we're honest, when we start thinking about teaching and we start thinking about truth and doctrine, these are the kinds of things that make some people start to say, get uncomfortable uncomfortable about church, uncomfortable about religion, start saying, you know what, I don't really want to be a part of that, a part of that system, that group, that organization, that institution that's just going to be focused on dogma and focused on doctrine and, and making sure fixated rigidly on being right. And if that's the concern, then actually that's, there's a lot in that that's an appropriate critique. Because if the motive is simply to be right and then be able to shove it in somebody's face, as a way to make ourselves feel better, then we're wrong. You can be wrong about being right. We'll have missed the entire motive of Jesus, which was to lead to human flourishing for everyone. Because it's not about being right for the sake of being right. It's that living in alignment with the teaching of God is the path to human flourishing for you individually and for others around you and society. 
Because what we believe matters extremely. It affects deeply what we think, what we do, and how we live. Let me just take a couple of examples. When you woke up yesterday and you saw that it was gross outside, how did that affect your behavior? Right? Some probably grabbed a jacket, grabbed an umbrella, some started weeping because spring has not come and it may never come and so you're cursing the day. Right? Whatever it is, it affected the way you lived yesterday. Think about others. If, if there's a situation where you perceive danger, do you just kind of stay the course and keep doing it even though you see it coming? No, that's ridiculous. We know that we change course in order to avoid what is dangerous and painful for ourselves and for others. If you believe that if you work hard, it will be rewarded, then your approach to school might be, yes, I'm going to dig in. I'm going to get it done. I'm gonna, it's going to lead to opportunities and things that I'll enjoy later, or you'll approach the way you go about your work with a diligence and a fervor because that will lead to more influence and more chances later. It'll affect your very approach to work and to life. What if you believe that you're worthless? See, that'll affect you too. Because you'll start looking for evidence. And as soon as you start looking for evidence for what you believe, you'll start to find it. And it'll simply reinforce the message that somebody gave you somewhere along the line that wounded your soul deeply. See, what we believe matters. What we believe about Jesus matters. If we believe Jesus is a good teacher, how will that affect the way that you live, what you think, what you do? Or you might listen intently, you might even study what he has to say, you might try to understand it, to break it down, to consider it. Because, hey, if he's a good teacher, then maybe what he has to say is worth considering. At the same time, if he's a teacher, then really it's a take it or leave it proposition. Because we've already learned lots of things from lots of good teachers in our lives, but we haven't applied them all. We've decided the things that we like. We've decided the things that agree with us. We've decided the things that make us feel good about ourselves. See, we ignore plenty of good teaching. And so, if Jesus is just a good teacher, then we may ignore his teaching as well. I mean, what if Jesus is a justice warrior? What, what if we might be inspired by this man who continued and constantly went into, went moving towards those people who had been marginalized, oppressed, abused, put down and outcast from society. We might be moved by the fact that this man was a champion of the underdog, going into places where no one else seemed to be willing to go. And man, if we're inspired enough, that it might even become an example to us and we might start moving into some of those places as well. And we might become champions for justice as well and we might come to those places where yes, we're going to do this because it's worth it. So we make those plans. But sometimes the inspiration fades, doesn't it? Make all those plans and then the day comes and it's like, here, tomorrow would be a better day. You know, if Jesus is Savior, how does that affect the way you think and live? I mean, saved us from what? I mean, everybody knows he saved us from sin, Right? Well, whew, I'm so glad I don't have to deal with that anymore. I'm so grateful. You know, and at least I don't have to deal with my sin. The reality is if, if all he came to deal with was my sin, then I pretty much have to deal with everything else. I have to chart my course. I've got to figure out how to solve my problems. I've got to navigate the future. I've got to provide for my family. It's great that I don't have to deal with my sin, but man, I got a lot left to do. 
And you know what? If he's just going to deal with my sin, if that's, you know, then what's it matter how I live? I might as well just keep doing what I want to do, keep doing whatever feels good, whatever feels right in the moment, because I'm stressed out about having to figure everything else out, so why should I bother to have to rigidly live a certain way? I'm just going to do what makes me happy. He's going to forgive it anyway. And what if Jesus is God? I mean, man, how would that change things? We'd have a high view of Jesus. We'd, he'd be an object of worship worthy of our obedience for sure, and probably obedience because we should really be afraid of him, that whole omnipotence thing where he can just kind of squish us at any given moment, right? We should be aware of that. And so we should, we should certainly obey him. We should certainly o- follow him. Yeah, and, and so if we grab on to one, any one of these, and there's other ways to think about Jesus, But what we believe about Jesus will absolutely matter and affect the way that we live our lives. But what if, what if Jesus is actually all of them? What if Jesus is in fact the holy and other and awesome God that sees us in our sin worthy of condemnation and death because we refuse to follow after him and yet in his love and his grace, he decided to get involved in the human experience and move into those places where there were the hurting and the oppressed and continue to seek justice for those who are being abused and taken advantage of and teaching everyone along the way the way of life that God has for them, the way that will lead to flourishing and then looking and seeing in humanity our failure to continue to seek justice, our failure to follow his teaching and so giving his life voluntarily to the point of death on a cross taking on our condemnation so that we could ultimately live what if that's who Jesus is doesn't that affect deeply how we live if that's what we believe then sure it's a call to obedience to God but a call that is not out of fear but because his teaching leads to life that flourishes for ourselves and the pursuit of justice allows for others' lives to flourish who otherwise would just be kicked to the curb. And man, his life given for me means I am saved, I am loved, there's nothing else I have to do. And so my obedience can come not out of fear but out of gratitude, out of love for him as he has loved me. See, what we believe matters. To be thoughtful about what we believe, why we believe it, where it comes from, what it leads to has implications in every part of our lives. It's not about being right. It's not about dogma. It's about your life and about others' lives. See, false teaching in the church is a problem because tolerating false teaching allows others to believe, get caught up and believe in a lie and to then live in such a way that is not God's best intent and design for their life. And Jesus is saying, yeah, these aren't compatible. Because what we believe matters. It matters when life starts, doesn't it? but it matters just as much the stories of those women who have had to make excruciating choices that have been trivialized in the debate, having experienced horrors and things that they cannot undo. What we believe matters. What we believe about how God has made and designed men and women and sexuality matters. What we believe about how God intends for us to care for the earth and the environment that he's given us matters. What we believe about how God intends us to live on behalf of our neighbor generously and joyfully. What we believe matters. 
It's why as a church we emphasize participating in groups, gathering around the scripture to hear from God speaking into our life together. It's why we have confirmation. It's not just a tradition and a milestone and a box to check along the way. It's about giving young people the opportunity to go deep and grapple with what do they believe about who God is, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. What do they know and understand about sin in their life? How do they experience his gifts and the presence of the Holy Spirit in them? Do they have anything to give the world? It gives them the chance to build their identity on something that is not shaking all around them because what they believe matters and what we teach matters. See, the the Secret Service, one of their responsibilities is addressing counterfeit currency that's circulating in America. They started actually back in the Civil War. That was their main focus. And over the years, counterfeiters have gotten a lot more sophisticated, and so they've had to increase the security measures built into the currency themselves. And the way that they've then trained Secret Service to identify the counterfeit bills is to train them intently and deeply on every one of the security elements that's in the real thing. And so they focus and fixated on how the paper feels, how it smells, what the texture of the print is like, the holograms that are embedded, the, you know, the watermarks that are embedded, the microprinting that's on the lapel of the jacket in the, in the all, and, and so there's so many others. So that when they pick up a counterfeit bill, all they have to do is look for the marks of the real thing, and if they don't find them, they know it's a counterfeit and should be rejected. See, this is why teaching matters. This is why we focus on what we believe so intently. So that those, when you encounter false teaching, when you encounter something that is telling you a way of life that is not as God intended, you can reject it. It's why we emphasize reading the scripture every day, God's word speaking to you so that you can learn to hear his voice clearly amongst all the other voices in life and you can learn to reject those that are not the true voice of God. Because what we believe matters because it affects every day of our lives. And Jesus is saying, repent. Repent from buying into the false teaching, from choosing some from column A, some from column B. Repent from tolerating the teaching that is not from me. He gives a warning, because if you don't, I will come as the one with the sharp double-edged sword. I will come, in other words, with the word of God, the word of truth that is a word of judgment and of condemnation and of conviction to show, to really cut us open to show how we've been living a foundationless life apart from the flourishing that he intended. And it matters not just for us, it matters for the world in which we live because if we just are taking some from Jesus and some from over here and some from over here, what makes us any different from the world around us? We have nothing of significance to offer if it's not different than what the world already has. And the world is desperate for some true and genuine hope And so Jesus says to those who overcome the temptation to false teaching, those who overcome tolerating the false teaching, I will give you the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it. Hidden manna is a reference to the the wilderness experience where God provided every single day this bread from heaven that would sustain them, would lead them, to guide them. But in our Deuteronomy passage earlier, We're reminded man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus is promising, in the midst of all these voices that are trying to lead you astray, in the midst of that, I will give you the hidden manna. I will speak into your heart, into your soul, the truth that will sustain you. And I will give you a white stone 
with a new name. The white stone was the symbol in, in the Roman Empire to have this white stone with a name written on it. It was actually the symbol of a new identity, a new allegiance. And Jesus is saying, I will give it to you. I will give you a stone, a new identity founded on the truth of who I am and the teaching that I give you because it's a foundation that will never be shaken. And then I will give you a new name. And there's a lot of debate about what that name is, but I think, I wonder if it's a name like Beloved, Cherished, Valued, Son, Daughter, a name that only you will know and a name spoken intimately from Jesus into your life. A name that will sustain you when everything else seems like it's going to crush you. A name that you can hold on to and you can believe in because it comes from Jesus. See, what we believe matters because it affects every moment of our lives. What we think, what we do, and how we live. Church, let's overcome. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word speaking into the reality of our lives today. May we be those who overcome, that we hear and know the truth, that we cling to it, because not just so we can be right or feel good, but so that we can align our lives with who Jesus is, and that it can lead to human flourishing, our own and so many others, in Jesus' name, amen. 